So just a, it's just a manual tonight. Well, we're not going to call it that. We're just going to call it some friends. That's what we're going with. Okay, good. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs, except for tonight. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast will discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Today, we have what is sometimes referred to as the social media mafia. We have myself, we have Swapnil, and we have Matt Sparks. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil, and I can never stay on time. <laughs> and Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University and program director of the fellowship program. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks, and I am a firm defender of the kidney and also make sure that no one uses back. <laughs> it's not so, in the top 10. Should be. So tonight, what we wanted to do is we wanted to uh, kind of go over a long-standing tradition that Matt started is the uh, top nephrology stories of the year. Matt's been doing this since 2010. Matt, you want to tell us a little bit about this tradition? Yeah, this started in 2010 on a poll that we ran on Renal Fellow Network. We just wanted to get a sense for you know, what was happening in nephrology in the landscape. And back then we had a tradition where we had published it on Christmas day. And uh, as time went on, <laughs> it became harder to get things done in the month of December. So we sort of pushed that off. And now we, we do that right at the beginning of the new year. So we just finished the voting on New Year's Eve. And so we are going to announce what are the top 10 stories of 2021. And, and every year you just do the top 10, right? Because I see we this this list goes all the way down to 25. We do. We uh, publish the top 10, a little blurb about each one. And then in the comment section, I typically will put the next, you know, voting for all the others just to have them up there. So I think we're going to go through the top 10. We're doing them in, in kind of reverse chronological order. Start at 10 and work our way to number one before the uh, ball drops at midnight. That's correct. Well, before we do that, let's give a little bit of a throwback to 2010. And it's very interesting uh, this was a year that had a lot of really amazing advances in the field of nephrology, one of which was the publication in science of APOL1. And oh, wow. would you not believe this? It did not get the top story of the year. What was top story of the year? So top story of the year was actually the Medicare bundling, which was something that had been brewing for like several years and finally going to be introduced in January 1st, 2011. So a lot of people apparently... I thought it was important enough to talk about. And that, that was a turning point in the United States for how we looked at dialysis care. And instead of uh, just you know charging Medicare for everything you did, now you have a certain amount of money that you had to spend per patient. So that was a really big deal. No, number two was actually the ideal trial. I think that that was huge, deserving of number two. And it really has changed how we initiate it does. It, that was a practice changing study. The ideal trial uh, randomized patients to what a GFR of 15 versus they tried to get to a GFR of seven 
for starting dialysis, but in the end, they could get people down to seven. They were all started for different uremic, uremic symptoms somewhere north of seven. Right. I think they were started around seven. They wanted to wait till five or so. They wanted to wait till five and they started around seven. So it was a 15 versus five, a seven trial, but mainly it was 15 versus start for uremia. Right? But no they, doubt about it. You looked at in the United States in particular, before IDEA was published, the, the average GFR that people were starting on dialysis was creeping up and up and up and up. And right when this, this trial was published, it started to come down. And so yep. this is definitely practice, practice changing. changing. Yeah. The other thing I'll say just to tell you about one of the other ones is the it, it marked the end of or one of the ends of renal nerve ablation. And so simplicity hypertension 2 study was presented. Sorry, sorry which nerve? Oh, renal. Th- <laughs> this is the renal fellow network. I, you know, this is a new year, uh, a new nephro underscore sparks. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm embracing everyone now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, so simplicity hypertension two trial was, was presented at the American heart association. Boo. And it actually, uh, you know, really just halted where, you know, and, and we're still trying to figure out where that stands in practice. So those are some highlights from almost a decade ago. Uh, really impressive. I think the APOL1 story is pretty typical for significant scientific breakthroughs is that when you first discover anything that novel, like you don't understand the implications of it. Well, I think the reason why, and this is, I'm reading back to what, what, what we wrote on that. And, 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 and I think the reason is because there was a lot of attention on MyH9 right. and, and, and yes. sort of in the same area. And so when we saw this come out in APOL1 and, and MyH9 is very, uh, it's on Close. the- very close, close on the same yeah. chromosome. And so it was like, you know, what exactly happened with that? And is this really it? Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, if it wasn't for my H9, I think there probably been a little bit more fanfare for it. Well, one back then. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's do this. Um, the, we had 25 uh, stories and I call them stories because it's not just publications. It can be lay press discussions about the field, anything that has an impact in nephrology. It cannot be on a prior poll. And also it has to be at least, uh, uh, we, we try to get them published, but occasionally they're not. Like for instance, in 2010, Simplicity was just presented, but it, you know, pretty, in essence, it was. So let's go with number 10 is a Kiki 2 in the Lancet published in April of uh, 2021. And this is a, this is a, an article that we talked about in FGJC and we even talked about on the podcast. Uh, and this is a, a, a big deal trial. We don't get a lot of sequels in nephrology. And this is one of our sequels. We had a Kiki a number of years ago. And so in a Kiki 1, the question was early dialysis help, Right. And the right. answer was no, it did not help. And then Kiki too was like, well, let's flip that question around. Does late dialysis harm patients? And they did find that there was some, uh, on the primary outcome, there was no difference, but on some of the secondary outcomes, it looked pretty pretty important. There was, uh, I think it was BUNs greater than 140 were a little concerning for increased uh, uh, risk for mortality. mortality. Yeah, yeah but, but but remember they went really, really late. Like, like when we were discussing it, and these were not patients so to get into the trial, uh, you know, you had to have a, a urea of more than 40 and an urea of oliganurea for 72 hours. It's like late so the weekend. Are... Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. In people who are aneuric. Uh, so we don't do that. Um, so they Start were like, on Friday. Know, let's, yeah, let's push it to as much as you can. And it turned out that that was harmful. Um, but, you know, again, even with this, with uh, Akiki was one of the first ones, uh, but there was Start AKI and there was Ideal ICU. 
there were three large trials which showed that you should wait and start late and i think people were going really you know let's put it late and late and late and late and ekiki to kind of put the brakes on saying you know start late but not too late i do think it is a kind of practice changing cuz i really was just letting it kind of letting it rip before that i was like ooh maybe maybe i need to be a little bit more careful here mm-hmm. all right okay. let's go to number 9 and i know that someone in this group will be very excited and that is the sas potassium salt and hypertension a reducing stroke and mortality published in New England Journal of Medicine September of 20 and 2021 and we did this one on the podcast also is that right swap i think no we, we didn't we we didn't do a podcast we did do a chat i think this was during our summer break which went on a little bit longer a little longer than that I mean, we, yeah. we, this is a, this is an important enough trial we should do this it is it is yeah, yeah it really is this is a big deal and it's been one that we've been waiting for for a long time mm-hmm. that uh anytime you kind of looked up well the salt, salt restriction actually improve mortality in a, in a randomized and interventional manner Mm-hmm. everybody was saying well wait for this study wait for this study and now it's out so this was uh yeah it was a cluster rct with very very pragmatic rct pragmatic yeah, trial yeah it hit a lot of the buzzwords from and, <laughs> and large exactly exactly were in this yeah it was 600 villages 30 600 villages i mean yes. that's when you're that's like a cluster that's a more than a cluster randomized trial it's a village cluster exactly so 300 villages in each in each group uh, again like arnold the, the, schwarzenegger you know 600 villages in each arm yeah 20000 patients 20000 wow 20, you know i'll say uh, swap ask me to write a book chapter in hypertension secrets it's going to be out soon is that right <laughs> <laughs> one of the chapters i wrote uh was was a lifestyle was lifestyle and uh unfortunately this is when page proof um stage and we couldn't we We should put this in. Is it still possible? But but we do say increasing potassium. You know the the advice is is pretty good, right? We do say increasing potassium is is a good thing. And yeah, so I think we should take a moment and, and really focus on this. Was not just reducing salt. What they did is they if you were in a village that was randomized to the intervention group, twenty five percent of your table salt became potassium chloride. Is that right? right? That's right. And so it simultaneously reduced sodium intake, and it was only. I was like 12 or 14 milliequivalents 15, a day reduction. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't exactly. that much sodium reduction. Yeah, but right? the potassium went up by about 20. But a pretty significant bump in your potassium intake and they had a significant reduction in blood pressure, strokes and mortality. Cardiovascular mortality and, and overall C- mortality. And total mortality and cardiovascular mortality. All so have you all done this at, at your houses or you, have you switched? No. 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 We should. Uh, but because it's easily available, right? You can buy it. Uh, and you can buy now. it at Amazon.com. That's yeah, right. The, the, but the couple of things here is that one, unless you put most of the salt in your household cooking, in in North America and in Europe and in Australia, most of the salt, most of the sodium comes in in the Process processing foods. of the food right, right. Uh, so it's not what you add though in india in china in brazil and a few other countries it's added at the household so there this could be implemented right now and hopefully people are implementing it uh, but the second thing that's happening here is fda approved uh, to call potassium chloride as a potassium salt you know when people see the word potassium chloride they think about it as a chemical if you call it like it's a natural it's just a salt but it's potassium salt uh, the food industry thinks it will make it more acceptable Uh, and, and there are Can studies we like, going on. Can we like associate with a mountaintop or something like that? Yeah, to make it healthy Himalayan, right? There's already the Himalayan salt. <laughs> I mean, right? like, but it, it turns out it doesn't contain mountain, a lot. Uh, yeah. That's Rocky, Rocky Mountain, mountain salt. salt is very high potassium. That's right. 
<laughs> uh, well, let's so, move on from something cheap to something expensive. And this is the Aurora trial with Volclosporin, also now approved for lupus nephritis, published in The Lancet. This one we definitely did in the NefJC podcast and Freely Filter. You know, this is very interesting to me. And, and I've tweeted about this many times, but anytime you see Volclosporin, you need to think about its very close cousin, Cyclosporin. You know, the studies they, they did in a group of patients that had lupus nephritis, you know, if they really wanted to see if this had less side effects than Cyclosporin or Tacrolimus, they would have they would have looked at this in a transplant population and they did not. And I'm, always con- I'm concerned about that because they want to say that this is, uh, you know, less toxic. So they did have a trial in, uh, in acute rejection like five, six years ago. And it didn't show much of a difference. It was like a you know pilot trial. And I think they quickly realized it's not going to show superiority. So let's move on to a population where there is no accepted standard of care, where CNIs are work, but they are not approved. So how Again, much this is, does this cost a year? That's what I've heard. So it's, it's about, it's going to be $90,000 a year. And the principal difference from, if I remember correctly, from Cyclosporin is it has much more reliable- Pharmacokinetics. Pharmacokinetics. So you don't need to do levels, right? You just put them on a set dose and forget about it, which is like awesome. You know, when we did the podcast, that's what Alchem and the, the rheumatologists were like, yeah, we love this. We are going to use yeah. it. You know, no. we roll our eyes because we know how to monitor, you know, tacrolimus or cyclosporin. It's not a big Is it worth $90,000 not to monitor something that could be similar in its efficacy and side effect profile? Exactly right. Well, and that's and that's where and that's where the drug companies get you because you don't know if it's similar in efficacy because that trial has not been done. There is a Chinese trial, right, that we talked about which did have tacrolimus um in in uh, in lupus nephritis which showed efficacy. But it, it was published in annals, but somehow it sank because uh, no, no trial is perfect and that trial had its weaknesses, but it did show an effect. And again, it's, if you look at the outcomes, it's proteinuria. You know, it's yeah. not oh, easy. The, the Aurora outcomes was a reduction in proteinuria. That's exactly right. But if I remember correctly, there's a continuation of Aurora and we're going to get more uh, solid outcomes in a year or two. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you should be happy that drug companies are doing trials in nephrology patients. I am totally happy with it. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, this is that you know, another approved and this drug. Is appro- and this drug is approved. It is it not is only trial, but, but it I, is approved. Know. And and, and, and probably this means that if it's approved, then insurance companies will cover it, right? And they may or may not cover tacrolimus or cyclosporine. Maybe. They'll be like, have you tried cyclophosphamide? Has the patient <laughs> failed cyclophosphamide? That's true. Okay, let's move to number seven. And this is the completion of the Phenarinone Orchestra Figaro. Uh, This is the cardiovascular outcomes as a primary outcome in diabetic kidney disease published in New England Journal of Medicine uh, in December, but I think it was presented uh, just before that at one of the national conferences. Probably AHA, right? Uh, Yeah, I think it was the AHA, yeah. Yeah. It was the AHA in November. I have um, COI here. I have been uh, on a, what do they call it? Advisory board for Bayer. No no COI for me. None for me. Uh, You know, I think... I'm trying to figure this out and, and where finerenone fits. Have you prescribed it yet, Matt? Things. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I, most of the patients I see are at the VA, and the VA, basically, their stance on it right now is uh, only if you fail phrenolactone and a plerinone or have contraindications to those medications, will they even consider uh, finerenone. I think that's where- Is your answer no, you have not prescribed it? Uh, no, so it's just, there's no way. Yeah. Is that a cost issue? How expensive is it? We don't even have it yet. It's not approved yet. Presumably it's a fortune, right? I don't know. I mean, I haven't been able to get to that point. So <laughs> yeah, the pharmacology is interesting, right? And the, the way it binds to the receptor, it's it's a non-steroidal, it's like more closer and structured to the calcium channel blockers. 
that's where you know they have some MR blocking activity. Hey, rewind, rewind. What what do you mean? What, what's the story with the calcium channel blockers? So uh, you know, like amlodipine uh, and nifedipine, they have some MR blocking activity. It's very very mild. Really? But that's what they use. They they modified that structure. So it's completely they, you know it has nothing in common. Like epilerinone, uh, uh, um, spironolactone. But the mineralocorticoid receptors are intracellular, right? This drug has to cross into the cell, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, but it's, it's structurally so different that it has no androgenic side effects, right? Which is a big deal. Yeah. I think those are big advances. It, it is expensive. And there are also some issues, which I haven't really figured out uh, why it doesn't affect blood pressure to the same degree as spironolactone or planarone is uh, just a, just something that's interesting. I think if we mm-hmm. really believe that the primary effect of these drugs and blood pressure is ENAC and MR, and these are very specific for it. You know, that's, that's very interesting, but they came out at a time when we had SGLT2 inhibitors and they're not as impressive as SGLT2 inhibitors. True. The flozins make the uh, finerenone trials seem less impressive. You know, if the, if the flozins did not exist, these would have been blockbusters. Their, their uh, effect size is not so different than ACE inhibitors alone in diabetic kidney disease. Am I right? It's about that 15% reduction. Right. It's, it's, I mean, plus or minus a few percent. It's, it's, it's pretty close to it. Yeah. And we went, and we went bananas over race inhibitors when they came out. The claims they make about hyperkalemia, I think, are uh, that it doesn't cause hyperkalemia is unsubstantiated. You know, like they took so much care. They had a run in period. And, you know, the studies are very clear. Like in the Figaro study, it was 1% hyperkalemia. No, that is, so that is the investigator, you know, this, that's stopping for hyperkalemia. If you look at all the hyperkalemia, it's way more than that. Uh, in Fidelio, it was, you know, way higher uh, if you looked at hospitalizations for hyperkalemia. Oh, the ER incidence of hyperkalemia discontinuation is 1.2%. And if you look at the K binder use, it's like it goes through the roof, right? So you're going to use pateromer and and SZC uh, to keep patients on it. Nothing wrong with that, right? If you do all that, you do get the benefit. Now I'm looking at Figaro. Are you talking about Fidelio when you're shooting from the hip there? Are you talking about Figaro? Uh, uh, I was shooting more from Fidelio, but it's the same right. thing. So, it's true for Figaro, right? The K-binder use did go up. But they have a lower, so the population is not as sick in yes, Figaro. Yes. The, so my, my concern is that I, I do think these drugs work, but you don't just go out and say, hey, don't worry about potassium. You do worry about no, potassium. Yeah. You use it You use it carefully, you know, monitor potassium. Yeah, sorry, uh, it's like the Urlink had that uh, post-paranolactone tri- uh, study, remember? Yeah, yeah, oh, my, a huge study, a very important study. Yeah. So we don't want that all over again. You don't want that. Right, so just to, just to catch the listeners up, uh, David Jurlink, who is a big- Pharmacoepi. Pharmacoepi guy, Canadian on Twitter, had a impactful, I think it was, was it, le- was it just a letter or was it a full article in the New England- It Journal was a full article. And it came out about four or five, six years ago, six years after the RAILS study got published. So the RAILS study, which is actually the same, right? That's the same author, Bertrand uh, Pitt. It's the same author yeah. as this uh, Figaro study. And RAL showed that, you know, a small dose of uh, spironolactone improved survival in stage four uh, heart failure. And every, and during that trial, they didn't have that much uh, hyperkalemia because they were super careful and monitored everything. And then it gets out to the public. Everybody starts throwing around spironolactone, not monitoring it very carefully. And the number of hospitalizations for hyperkalemia dramatically went up. Yeah. So, so again, we don't want that to happen. So let's be careful. Use this drug. I'm sure it's going to be good, but let's be careful while you're using this drug. Have you used it, Joel? Yeah. So I have a, I have a patient that uh, has uh, a biopsy-proven diabetic nephropathy, had hundreds of uh, milligrams of, uh, of albumin per gram creatinine, 
That was after they were put on an, uh, an ARB at maximum dose and a low dose uh, SGLT2 inhibitor. And you got this residual albuminuria. And it, I was like, okay, you know, the patient asked me, patient said very point blank, is there anything I can, else I can do? I was like, well, as a matter of fact, there is. These guys, they are doing the right trials, right? They did, the, they did uh, Fidelio, they did Figaro. Uh, they are doing the fidelity analysis. They seem to be uh, well done trials, also. Right, and and, and the uh, well and they're doing another one. They're doing an, one in non-diabetic uh, CKD now. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a large trial in in non-diabetic CKD. So uh, I, we should be happy. You know, people are uh, pharma is paying attention to our patients. That's fantastic. Bring it on. Okay, so before we move to number six, I do want to talk about something that didn't make the top ten. After we've talked about two drugs that were recently approved in the nephrology space, which was uh, finerenone and uh, voclosporin, is there were some pretty serious misses in nephrology. So in 2020, we had Tricida's, what's their uh, metabolic acidosis drug called? Viverimir. Viverimir got uh, nixed. And then in 2021, Roxadustat got shot down. Bardoxolone for IgA got shot down, and tenapinor is a, an alternative to phosphorus binders. It is an NH3 antagonist in the in the gut that prevents f- gut phosphorus absorption. And the drugs already approved for irritable bowel syndrome when they have a constipation type, and they were looking for an expansion of their label to block phosphorus. The drug does block phosphorus absorption. It did lower phosphorus, but the FDA said that was not enough because they hadn't kind of closed the loop on improving phosphorus levels with improved patient outcomes, I suppose. But that's like, you know, so for all our optimism in nephrology, three promising drugs went to the FDA all of them with you know varying degrees of data in terms of how compelling they are, and and all of them got shot down. Yeah, yeah, maybe one of them is slightly different than the others. The Roxadustat, right? We covered in the podcast, right? I think they just twice. Didn't trust. Once twice, we had yes. once with the positive data, and the other time when we had to reverse it. Right, right. The the uh, the other drugs had surrogate outcome data, which was promising. Uh, and it's funny because the FDA and the National Kidney Foundation had this meeting where they went over, you know, it's published in AJKD uh, in early 2020. They had a conference where they said, hey, this is how we would get the surrogate outcomes, reduction in albuminuria, GFR slope, it's acceptable to the FDA if you do all these things. And these companies went ahead and did that, uh, some of them at least, and, and they still did not get pub- get approved, which is kind of interesting uh, because they are looking beyond uh, just you know uh, the the GFR slope and albuminuria, I guess they're looking for hard outcomes, and they didn't see that, so they said. Mm. You're out. It is difficult to get a drug across the finish line in the United States. That's for sure. Okay, that's that's a, a detour to something that didn't make the top ten. Let's detour completely then. Okay, uh, to number six, and we don't have a paper. We don't have hardly any information, but a New York Times article and a lot of Me Too uh, articles around it's just successfully genetically altered pig kidney transplant into a human that was uh, earlier this year. Hey, it's 2021. It's the time for science by press release. You know, it's it's interesting from what we can tell is this uh, kidney was trans- transplanted into a human that had uh, brain death and the intensive care unit was planted into, uh, out, was out, actually outside the body, not inside the body, right outside the leg. And it functioned for about three days, uh, making urine. And apparently they said creatinine might've, Stayed the same? Is that what they said? 
The New York Times article said it normalized. I thought that's what it's normalized. So I tried to do a little reading, and there's a really good article in Jason from 2020 that really goes through like what are some of the issues with uh, transplanting um, pig kidney into humans, and and one of the things is, uh, is that not only humans but also uh, non-human primates. Uh, they'll basically make antibody to pig uh, antigens. And there's three uh, sort of uh, these carbohydrate antigens that they make. Um, and so the, the pig, there's three different knockout uh, genes. And I, I'm not sure, since the paper is not published, which one they used uh, for uh, this study. But my guess is that it had even more alterations than, than what's it listed in this Jason paper. And then also uh, different medications they can give to suppress the immune system. And from what, it can, what I can tell here, they also uh, put in some human complement genes as well. And so from what I can tell, maybe five or six genetic manipulations have been performed in pigs before this paper. And we'll just have to see what they showed. I, uh, I'm not really sure like what to make of this. Sounds exciting. I want to caution everyone to think maybe we still are a few decades away from this really occurring in humans. It's one of those things that, you know, progress happens very slowly. People have been talking about xenotransplantation for, I don't know, a few decades. And then CRISPR comes along and suddenly things start to move fast. Who knows, right? Um, like, But if, if there was a patient population, you know, again, I'm, I'm riffing uh, as always. Um, would you like I, I'm thinking of which patient population where the risk might be worthwhile, right? If you look at the people with the, you know, the NF madness called them the untransplantables who have high PRA and, and whatnot. The, the Jason paper does uh, actually have a table that goes through what this, what would be a group of patients. And so I actually said elderly patients without significant comorbid diseases, uh, they had a specific blood type that would be difficult to get a kidney. Okay. Recurrent FSGS is a, is a group that they had highlighted. Patients that have high sensitations to human HLA mm -hmm. and, and someone that um, had no vascular access and no other options for a kidney transplant could be right. uh, possibilities. But they also go through others. That's just a, a small highlight. It's hard to imagine anything more game-changing than if, if we woke up uh, in a month or two or a year or two or a decade or two and there was no shortage of transplant organs. Is that with, yeah. if that if you remove that bottleneck, that overnight will change the whole perspective on transplant. Yeah, no more dialysis. So much of transplant and so much of what we do for transplant is predicated on this organ is so valuable. We can't get another one if this one goes up. We need to make sure we only transplant it into the perfect patient because the thing is so valuable. And when it becomes something that you can just acquire readily. Uh, the scope of people that will be available for transplant just widens dramatically. Interesting thing when reading this paper is you can you can see how how much researchers have been really trying to figure out if we can do this because they named this the major pig xenoantigen, uh, and it basically means this thing is made it to where we cannot transplant into a human or a non-human primate because they will immediately reject it. And figure right. three from that paper is the pig kidney being immediately rejected. Yeah. Uh, and so they had to get rid of that. That's the first move. And then it turns out there's multiple other smaller antigens that need to be removed. And so it looks like we're getting there, but we need more yeah. information to really- This, this was covered in that. Josh Mesrick's book, uh, When Death Becomes Life, which is what we did. It was the book club book for NFJC, not this year. Was it this year? 
This year. Yeah, it was this year. It was this year. Yeah. And I thought it was an excellent book. And he talked about xenotransplant. I think his line was uh, uh, xenotransplant always has been and always will be the future of transplant. (laughs) (laughs) The future is here. Uh, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It, 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 you got to get past brain dead patients and you got to be able to put the organ inside the body. Uh, those are those are steps that need to be acquired. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to something that nephrologists really, really like and they really hate. And those are guidelines are the KDGO blood pressure guidelines published in 2021. Uh, and they basically took one number and decided to just put that to everybody, 120. First of all, I love simplification. Making a simplified uh, blood pressure recommendations is great. 120 for everyone. 120 for everyone. It's easy, right? Except except the transplanters at 130. Okay. <laughs> they get 10 more. <laughs> they get 10 more. They are just afraid of graft loss. and whatever. Except for there's dialysis no too. We just don't. Oh, have. yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing for dialysis. There's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing for them. Yeah, the, the funny thing, like we covered this on the podcast as well, on the NFGC podcast. Uh, last month, I did a ISN uh, webinar with um, uh, Charlie Thompson, who's on the guidelines. I am not on these guidelines. Uh, and we, he covered the guidelines and I was kind of praising them on the sideline. And we were talking about the standardized BP and other stuff. It seems there is a strong push. Charlie is like we are under attack. It seems that there are a lot of people who are writing commentaries against the KDGO guidelines, which will be coming out soon. Uh, a lot of the Europeans and uh, maybe other places also. Saying 120 is happy. too low or saying standard blood pressures are so, so, so no, um, if you look at the, the American guidelines are 130, right? The ACCAHA yep. is 130. Uh, the Europeans uh, for diabetes for CKD are 130 or, you know, 140, 130, somewhere there. Unless you're pro New York and then they're 120, right? Don't they usually? Uh, no, they don't. The Europeans don't use 120 at all. They are. And, and in fact, they say don't go below 120. They have kind of funny guidelines. They are very odd. Uh, I won't diss the Europeans too much, uh, but they are very odd. They we just didn't like madness. Remember that. Right. Right. Like, exactly. It goes all over the place. Exactly. Like a roller it goes all coaster. Over. Yeah. But what about for diabetes in this KDGO guidelines? 120. Wow. E- okay. Even 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 though, what was it? Valor and... Uh, Accord. And Accord. Accord. At the time, was the most expensive trial that was performed by the NIH. And did not show improved outcomes, right? At the low blood pressure. Uh, so it, there, was, there was a reduction in stroke, uh, but there was a non-significant increase in mortality. That's why. Well, if it's not significant. <laughs> it's only <laughs> worth there, there was some cool analysis which looked at, uh, because it was also intensive blood sugar control, right? So it looks like in the standard blood sugar, uh, the low blood pressure was actually beneficial. It was the combination of intensive blood sugar and intensive low BP that was causing the mortality. Don't don't. Do you remember when I was a fellow? I wrote a post on Renal Fellow Network for Accord, and and just a plug for any fellow listening: please send an email to me and consider doing that. You'll never forget the trial, and it'll be something you refer to when you're around uh, forever. Okay. Um, okay. You want to move number on four. to yeah. number four, and this is click. Chlorothaladone reduces blood pressure in CKD, published in New England Journal of Medicine, November 2021, and presentation at ASN. Um, so old is new, chlorothaladone. Uh, and this this was sort of a, always, everyone sort of says, hey, CKD, EGFR is low, probably not going to work. Thiazide is not going to work. 
Uh, and they showed you had a nice 10 millimeter mercury reduction uh, with corthalidone and put at it back 12 and a half. They got nearly 10 millimeters of mercury with 12 and a half milligrams and they were able to titrate up to 50 if needed be. So so when people complain that you can't reach the 120 from KDGO guidelines? This is, there's this new drug, brand new. See if you have it on formula. It's called clothalidone and maybe what you need. This is one the VA will get. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Canada. Yeah. And, and, and Canada, and Exactly. And it's not as expensive case. as, yeah, Finerinone. You said they only had 50 milligram dosing in Canada. What the hell are you yes. going to do with that thing? Well, how, but the other thing is it does cause side effects. I mean, they, and they, they show yeah, all so that. So many too. side effects. Yeah. I so mean, it's not, it's not clean. It's not um, a benign drug. That's what yeah. I always, we said in the chat, I remember talking about it is, uh, you know, you get effect in blood pressure, but you'll also need to watch sodium, potassium. Your uh, blood pressure dropping too much. <laughs> I mean, glucose going up, cholesterol going up. Yeah. yeah so this is a challenging group of patients. And so it's great to have clinical evidence and a really well conducted study. Um, Rajiv Agarwal, is that right? Yeah. yeah. We did. We had yeah. him on the, we had him on oh, the, he was on, on the, okay. The yeah. And he's, and he, if he's involved in a study, it's always really done well. He's classic. And, and talking, yeah, talking about the VA, there's a large hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothalidone trial going on. I think it's like, 40,000 patients. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. That's the next big trial in this year. Well, we cannot leave a top 10 post in the year 2021 without having SGLT2 inhibitors. So this is the DAPA CKD IGA subgroup published in Kidney International, April, 2021. This is to me, practice changing. And I've definitely been using it in all patients, especially uh, if they have IgA nephropathy, and I've seen really great success with it. Uh, and the other thing, it's uh, more patients with IgA than any of the other IgA trials, like testing or stop IgA. We should note, though, it's not a trial that was designed for IgA nephropathy. This is a subgroup analysis. You know, we don't have the side effects of steroids in a group of patients. We didn't don't have a lot to, to offer. Mm-hmm. So um, this is great news. Exactly. And it is sort of the, not in the early time when you're just diagnosing them and they're nephrotic, but you know, later on we have these CKD patients who have IgA nephropathy. This is definitely worth using. Yeah. They also had an FSGS subgroup, uh, which came out, but the numbers are even smaller. They're like a hundred patients or so. So the 95% confidence intervals cross one, but it looks like in any, to me, it looks like in any GN where, you know, you're beyond the immunosuppression. This probably just scarring and fibrosis and what have you, which is going on. You should use a flozin in any proteinuric CKD. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I uh, important to notice is that like 96% of the people with IgA here were biopsy-proven IgA. This was not just, they got proteinuria, they don't have diabetes, maybe it's IgA type of thing. This is, the, in 96% of them, it was IgA. And then they looked at the effect size, whether, whether it was biopsy proven or not, there was no difference there. And so- The GN purists still complain, right? They don't know the MEST score or the MEST C score or whatever. And, you know, all those kind of things. But I say, who cares, right? If they could show a benefit without knowing and that. I got another question. The, um, the two sides, the two arms were pretty equal in size. Was this an area in which they stratified when they went through the, went through the randomization? It looks like they must have to have it so equal for something that was, you know, it was a huge study. There was only a couple hundred with IGA. And if they yeah. did, that was smart of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, the, the IGA paper came out right away, right? That the yeah. presentation it was a pre, it was a pre-specified. So it must outcome. have been That's pre-specified. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. before we move on to number uh, two, we should also point out that 
almost getting into the top 10 was another new approved drug for IJ nephropathy, and that's uh, this sustained or delayed release uh, budesonide. What's the story here? And, and so that was actually published, I think it was in The Lancet in La, 2017. Uh, 20, yeah, Nefigan. 2018, yeah, Nefigan. But that was a phase two study. Oh, There's okay. a phase three study which has been done uh, and it was presented, but it's not, not published, published yet. yet. So we will that's cover what, that in FJC when it does get published. But but the FDA did must have looked at the data, right? Yeah, the FDA always it. says they, they they yeah they don't they don't look at the publication they look at the raw right. data right. And so um, the thought of this is that this drug goes the steroid goes into your gastrointestinal tract and then sort of bathes the the malt the mucosal associated lymphoidal tissue where this IgA is being made and sort of calms down this IgA is less systemic as well. Um, we'll have to look to see in the phase three trial if that really was the case. Um, but it's another new approved drug and for IgA. So really, that's am- amazing to see these two things uh, happen. And we also, I guess, we'll also cover low-dose testing, which was presented at ASN Kidney Week uh, whenever those are published. Okay, so number two, being uh, around in nephrology in 2021, you know that we had a lot of discussion about race and EGFR. And so number two is the new race EGFR, uh, race-free EGFR equations, published in New England Journal of Medicine, November of 2021. You know, I think there's a lot to, to discuss here. I think the biggest thing is that the field as a whole really, I think, has taken the torch to ensure that racism and systemic racism is diminished in our field and, and, and removed, not just in EGFR equations, but really in, in the, the, the horrible disparity that we see in patients that end up on dialysis and also diminishes their ability to get kidney transplantation. And, and this is not going to fix those things, but it put a lens and a spotlight on this issue which uh, I can see uh, at ASN Kidney Week, a lot of attention was placed on that. So here's my here's my question. In five years, do you think we're still using this creatinine-based equation that came out in this mm-hmm. year? We're using a lot more cystatin C, or yep. are we going to be getting to whether they're talking about multi-factors, uh, additional, additional factors that are looking at? Where do you think we're ultimately going to? In my opinion, I think that this also is another area we have not paid as much attention to, and that's GFR and estimated GFR. And I think we need to have innovation in actually measuring GFR and forgetting estimating equations. I do think cystatin C will be used more widely. I mean, I'm using it more widely. I'm pushing yeah. our VA to do it in-house. And they were pretty clear in the uh, recommendations that came out of that task force from from uh, ASN and NKF that they really they really like cystatin C in those recommendations. Yeah, cystatin C is race blind, right? So it, it yeah. does make a lot of sense, to be honest. It's cleaner, way cleaner than the others. And it's better at predicting outcomes, right? And there's exactly. probably a number we, we, of reasons that are not related to GFR that it is better for <laughs> predicting outcomes, but that's helpful, right? Because that's really ultimately yeah. what we want. Yeah. And, but there are, you know, I think it's going to change how, if we start using cystatency, I'm sure there are other things that affect cystatency, right? Exactly. We are used to the creatinine stuff. Now we'll have to re, re-educate but ourselves. The, uh, let's just not keep it limited to cystatency and creatinine. I mean, mm-hmm. there are other ways that we can start measuring GFR. I mean, I was very high up on that uh, Nick kidney device that measures mm-hmm. GFR. Real-time GFR. Um, real-time mm-hmm. GFR through a skin monitor, you know, mm-hmm. like I think this is going to also make us really consider this where we didn't have an advance for 20, 30 years. And now 
you know, we just change the equation every few years. Let's just think about a better way we can measure GFR because we really need that to dose drugs, to, uh, to diagnose kidney disease, to risk stratify, to predict events. There's a lot of things you need this for. So uh, that's number two. And number one, I think I want to talk about a few other things. And uh, every year this happens and no one votes for any of the basic science. And I want to highlight uh, one study in particular. And this actually came in, let me find it down here, at number 16. Uh, and this was a paper in Nature Genetics, Reversal Assist in Animal Model Advanced CK, uh, Polycystic Kidney Disease. The significance of this study is that they let these mice get pretty advanced uh, number of cysts throughout their kidney. I mean, they were chock full with cysts. And then they genetically altered by turning on a gene that was knocked out using CRISPR-Cas9. How close to the animal model is this to real autosomal dominant? I mean, it's the same gene uh, that's in humans. Yeah, it's PKD. But what was amazing was the cysts all went away and got better. So to me, what this means is that there is a possibility of this occurring in humans and that it's not maybe not over when you just have a lot of cysts. So that was really interesting paper. And that was from Stefan Somlo's group at, at Yale. Uh, anything else you guys want to highlight before we go to number one? Let's go. Okay. Yeah, let's go to number one. Number yeah. one is the KDGO GN update published in Kidney International, October, 2021. People loved it. We had the Twitter chat. Everyone came out. You know, GN is an area where you really do need some guidelines because sometimes the evidence is scant and also patients are in... The patients are rare. Like unless yeah, you're in a tertiary care center, you're just going to get these rarely and you want to know what the consensus is. The thing that I really hope is that they don't go another 10 years. With It went from 2012 to 2021 to get these things updated. And they promise with Magic Hat or whatever their new plat- technology platform is, they're going to do these updates more often. I-, I really would love to see that come to fruition because I think that these, th- these documents are super important and it is a shame when they only get updated once a decade. And, and the field's moving fast too. And the field is moving fast. It, paradoxically, you know, the guidelines where we have the least number of trials is the one, of course, now we do have some in GN, is where the guidelines are so helpful, so uh, which helpful. is kind of funny. Right. Uh, they, they are very well written. You've got a bunch of, you know, really experts with deep expertise in that topic who are, it's like good review articles for you to go over all these situations. They give a lot of helpful advice. They're not go, go beyond the headline guidelines when you read them. Uh, in, in the text, there is a lot of helpful um, advice about what you can do with a particular Situation. I did want to shout out to the um, the last month in nephrology, which is a which is mm-hmm. a blog uh, run by Vibo Kesker and Tukaram and a couple of others from Mumbai. They did cover these guidelines as well, and they came down pretty hard on the uh, vitamin R love in the KDGO GN uh-huh. guidelines. A lot so, of rituximab. So give yeah yeah. So give give them a read as well for a little bit of a skeptical take. It's not all rara. So KDGO in the last year has had diabetes, hypertension, and GN. That is a big year. I think diabetes was uh, end of- In 2020, 2020 but- 20, yeah, yeah, very close. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And these, I mean, these are a huge amount of work, right? They have these, they have a separate work group that does the yeah. evidence review and I, a large I know, work I know group. what's happened. What's that? Well, they get a lot more work done because they're not at nice hotels anymore. 
There you go. That's right. Now that everybody's working from home, they have Although, to... please, if you want to invite me, I'll give you some nice hotels. <laughs> I don't know what else is coming out. Maybe anemia or. Um... Oh. Uh, oh yeah, gosh, or, C- or CKD, MBD. Uh, hopefully not. Uh, well, th- I think there's a lot of really great stuff. And is there anything we want to highlight? I mean, if you notice, the top ten did not get a single COVID um, study. Yeah, I was kind of. I thought that was in interesting. No, no COVID in the in the top ten. There's a number thirteen uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccination antibody response that was suboptimal in patients on dialysis. But you know, the thing about that is like. We've known that for every single vaccination we have. I mean, yeah. that's why you want to get them vaccinated before they go on dialysis. So I'm looking at this top 10, and we did not do Figaro in FJC. We did not do IgA subgroup of DAPA CKD, and we did not do the pig transplant. So we we did seven out of 10 in FJC. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, some stuff we should cover. I mean, we didn't talk about the anti-nephrom antibodies and minimal change disease. Are we doing that this month? Yeah, yeah that's the next, that's next week. Yeah. And then oh, next week. Uh, the lust trial we did talk about that got did 17 talk about that. Yep. basics, 18 yeah. basics. Uh, what else was interesting? You know, I put in another basic science about renin cells sensing pressure through baroreceptors. I think it's a really interesting study. And then the AKI alert trial, a lot of really cool stuff. And we'll look forward to see what 2022 has in store. Hopefully let's go with. I still can't, I still can't get over the the hypoxia inducible factor ended up being a being nearly a I mean I get that the daprodustat hit their hit cardiovascular safety in their primary outcome and so no no superiority but seems about as safe as epo it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see what happens when they go to the uh, FDA but for a drug that seemed that everybody was saying was going to change the face of dialysis and CKD for it to just flop is just stunning yeah. to me. The the so we had uh, we invited Dan Coin afterwards, you know, after yeah. this uh, locally to give a talk, and he goes through. This was like he talked about a month before the FDA meeting, so we didn't know what was going to happen. But he went through the FDA documents because the documents are public, right? And he had read all the analysis, and he goes through everything the FDA does. And remember when the presentation by Bob Prevenzano happened, it was like, this is superior. Yeah. So that yeah. that has completely gone out. Uh, yeah. So they are saying for, for efficacy, it is similar to EPO, but yeah. for safety, uh, they are now falling back on the non-inferiority. non-inferiority. Right. And it's the whole thing about the non-inferiority, right? Depending on how you analyze That's it. That's all that produced that showed was it non-inferiority, right? Right. But depending on how you analyze it, uh, you know, whether you're on the drug, not on the drug, how many days after the drug in, in like the FDA did hundred analysis. And in, you know, 10 of them, it looked worse, not just non-inferior. Right. So they, they had, and again, Dan the coin was very convincing to me that those analysis were not the right analysis, but if FDA wanted to reject it, I think they got their excuse there. Uh, so it'll be interesting once, and remember, Vada Dustat also was inferior. It wasn't oh, so inferior. Not, yes. not inferior, it's inferior, right? It was, it was inferior. I mean, that, and that's the and that's the thing that's so compelling is yeah. uh, Roxa Dustat, they messed up their statistics. And so they literally lied to the nephrology community with their initial thing, came clean and said, we're non-inferior. Then Vidadustat was not non-inferior, was inferior. And then Dapradustat was once again, not inferior just not nearly what we were open for yeah so who knows if, if dapra do start gets approved then maybe fda will look again perhaps i don't know yeah we, and, and oral epo would have been nice 
And oral EPO would have a lot of uses. Absolutely. I, I still, I mean, there's some uh, concerns about long-term effects yeah. with the HIF system. And I mean, this is tied into, it's, it's tied into many malignancies and mm-hmm. uh, anemia has not been a very good field. Uh, not, has not delivered the health benefits that we all expected from treating anemia. And, and again, it's a kind of a pendulum, right? Like EPO was approved just on the basis of hemoglobin. Trans, uh, transfusions. Transfusions, sorry, transfusions, exactly. 80s and 90s was a time yeah. we just, uh, we saw an abnormal value. We said, correct that and everything will be better. Uh, and it, it's just didn't work out so well. Easy. Nope. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, do we want to do a uh, tubular secretions? Or are we done here? Whatever, we can think of something. I mean, we probably should. I mean, it's pretty boring as it was. So yeah, tubular secretion should be fun. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, I, I guess I can, you know, say what I've been doing. I got a really fun game to play on Nintendo Switch called Overcook. Uh, actually, this was uh, recommended to me by Samir Farouk, and I started playing it and. Basically, you would get a team of four people. So my whole family, we were like in the kitchen. It's on Nintendo Switch and we like all have a different role to play. And we have to communicate together to like cook on ice and like all kinds. It's really fun. If you want to have something to blow some time and and have a good time, Overcooked. Uh, It's won a lot of awards for video games and such. I got a new Lego. I got a Lego box to put together. I'm very excited about it. It is. Oh, a Porsche? 1,458 pieces. It is a Porsche 911 Targa. I'm looking forward to putting it together this coming week. That is Lego. My... Wow. Is that That's like nice. the Lego architecture or something? What is it called? These things have a name, right? Technique. And when you go to the higher level, it's kind of a Lego automotive or something, perhaps. Yeah, I don't see a, I don't see a additional branding. Just It just says. This was my. Uh, oh, Yoda. Baby Yoda. Year. Grogu. Oh, and the ears move. Sweet. <laughs> the mouth even opens up, you know. Does it have a come with a bowl of soup? No, I wish it came with a frog. Swap, you gotta have some. Yeah, so so talking of games, my my younger one has discovered. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever played Beyblades. They are like yeah. the spinning, oh, yeah, the spinning tops. tops. Yeah, yeah, the spinning tops. Yeah, yeah. So we found uh, my older one's uh, old Beyblade, and my younger one was like, "Hey, my seven-year-old was like, let's play this." So that's what he wanted for Christmas, and so he's got like a collection of seven now, and. I'm becoming a Beyblade, a blader. I'm a learning later. <laughs> okay, guys, this is a nice, short and sweet uh, podcast. Thanks for doing this. I'll try to get this out next week. <laughs>